Hello, and welcome back to season two of Music for PhDs. I'm Sunita, your friendly podcast host and producer. I'm an artist who paints to music, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Kate, who is the real-life PhD behind Music for PhDs. Hi, everyone. I'm a real-life PhD, and listeners who've tuned in before know I love joining the podcast to talk about all things music, movement, language, art, and science. It's great to be back for season two. So Music for PhDs is really an art project disguised as a podcast. I think I've described it that way before. I love music, but I myself am not a musician, so it can feel just like a bunch of voodoo sometimes. Uh, There are all these sounds, I don't know how they're made, but they evoke this really strong emotional and physical response sometimes, right? You know, you you feel this urge to to get up and dance or or sing in the shower, even if you're a terrible singer. (laughs) Sunita, I totally get it. I was a musician for a long time before I became a scientist, and part of why I studied music is that there's something about it that just produces really strong responses for a lot of people, like you're describing. And test tubes or computer code don't always do that. Yeah, it's a really fascinating sort of visceral human response. And it happens so quickly. A lot of the reason that I try to paint live to music is to try and put a visual on this. Uh, Maybe, again, because I'm not a musician, I find it really difficult to describe music in words. You know, if I were telling you about a concert that I'd been to, it would be be vague. (laughs) You know, it'd be, oh, there was this loud crashing part, and then it got very quiet, and I think I heard violins, um, et cetera, et cetera. But I do find that I can chart my response a lot more intuitively if I'm just drawing or painting and kind of moving things with my hands uh, and making marks in time to that music. Right. You and I talked a lot last season about all the different ways people can experience music. So it's in your brain and it's in your body. Um, You hear music with your ears, but you also use your eyes and you move. Music by its nature has a really big temporal component of the timing. Music has to occur over the course of a few moments, but music is also fleeting. So once it happens, then it's gone. And I think painting is a wonderful way to make music last longer. Full disclosure, I might be biased. Uh, Sunita, I have one of your paintings from last season in my house right now. (laughs) I love it. I'm so glad that that piece belongs to you now. And yeah, it's a great memento of a piece of music that means a lot to you and that I really enjoyed getting to explore and learn more about in all its depths and personal history. So live painting is a really great way to kind of capture the moment. You know, music changes as we listen to it over and over again. I certainly found that with all of last season, the more that I knew about a piece, the more often I had listened to it, uh, the more context I had for its inspiration and its origin story, it just changed how I how I heard it and how it sounded and and then how that came out on the page. So for season two of Music for PhDs, Dr. Kate and I are going to dive into music as a language. What does it convey? How is it used? Can it be translated? 
there's there's so much we're going to be able to cover. I'm really excited. Some of this was the focus of my PhD research. So how people learn about music, how they understand it, what it means to learn about the music in your culture versus the music that somebody else might hear growing up. Music isn't exactly like a language, but there's so much going on about how we convey information and how we communicate. Um, I think we're going to have tons of nerdy fun. Nerdy fun is my favorite kind of fun. This season, we're going to dive into music as a language. So I'll be live painting to spoken word poetry, a choir performance, and even an opera solo. Thank you so much for joining, and I hope you enjoy this second season of Music for PhDs, the art project disguised as a podcast. So, Dr. Kate, million-dollar question, is music a language? Yeah, the uh, is music the universal language question? <sighs> Sunita, the short answer is no. The slightly longer answer is definitely not, (laughs) Um, but they do have some things in common. So music does use sounds and symbols to communicate information. Uh, Language also uses sounds and symbols to communicate information between people. But I think the key here is that in music, the sounds aren't directly tied to specific meanings in a way that conveys information. So words usually match with a pretty specific meaning. Individual music notes really don't. (laughs) That is my dear furry pandemic best friend, Dakota the Husky Dog. Mm -hmm. Um, And for those of you listening at home, you could probably tell that in that selection, Dakota was not pleased with me. <laughs> Dakota wants something. I'm, I mean, I'm not sure what, but... That's the trick, is Dakota can sing songs, but Sunita, you don't know what she wants. Uh, I hang out with her a lot, so that particular song, I think, means pat me and then give me treats. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but... Music in general is a good way to convey emotions like I am unhappy at you, human, uh, but a less good way to convey I would like treats now. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, unless you have a lot of history with her, like I can definitely tell that she's unhappy, uh, but I don't think I could make the leap that she's specifically hungry, although she's probably hungry most of the time. Well, yeah, that's Huskies for you. So you couldn't exactly give, say, driving directions using music. Exactly. Um, To the best of my knowledge, nobody's written a sequence of music notes that really effectively conveys the specific idea, turn right, Uh, much less, you know, turn right at the second traffic light after you pull out of the parking lot. So an opera singer maybe could sing that and cheat. They would be using language to convey the ideas in a musical way. But the music itself isn't conveying the information. So among other things, the reason that that's tricky is the question of mapping sounds to particular meanings. 
And for anyone who's played a piano before, the note middle G on a piano has a pretty consistent pitch, if your piano is tuned, of 392 hertz. But the pitch 392 hertz doesn't really have much meaning in and of itself. The sound pattern of the words traffic light, on the other hand, have a pretty consistent meaning if you speak English. Mm-hmm. So there's the sound that we combine in different ways to make music, uh, but a particular tone at a particular frequency doesn't mean something the way the symbol, like the, the letter A means in the English language. Right. We're not used to using music that way. So they both use sound, they both communicate information, uh, but their structure is a bit different. So they are both these abstract sound systems that they use sounds and silences to pass on information. I think one other thing that's interesting about them is that they can be codified and written down on paper. So spoken language is originally an oral tradition, um, but now we can write things down to convey information. Music's kind of the same way. Um, Making music is mostly an auditory experience, but writing music down is another way to capture it. For sure. That actually kind of reminds me, I think there's there's like a spy story in the Outlander book series where the different factions are communicating via a a cipher and it's written down in in a piece of sheet music. So they've kind of embedded the code in these half notes and notes that are on the on the sheet music itself. Oh, that's cool. I haven't encountered using music as a coded plot point before. But that's also a good example of what I was just talking about, where the music itself isn't really passing on the content of the message. It's the music notation written down on the page that's being used as a key to unlock a set of language-based coded instructions. And that is common throughout time. So composers, for example, have sometimes used music to spell words or spell codes in pieces of composition. So, for example, J.S. Bach spelled his own name in several of his works. He was very modest that way. He did have to cheat uh, by using a B natural to make the H, which apparently you can get away with if you're German. Um, Other composers have worked in the names of their lovers or uh, their dogs. Oh, I don't think you could spell Dakota in sheet music, though, unfortunately. Unfortunately. I also heard, and this is a little bit more contemporary, about an illegal bookkeeping ring in New York where the police eventually vested this group because they figured out that the, the bets were being coded and written down on a piece of sheet music. And uh, someone looked at the at the music and was like, that's not music. That would sound <laughs> terrible. And I guess that was the clue to figure out that this is not actually trying to convey music. Oh, but that's a very classy bookie. Oh, very New York though, right? <laughs> totally. So that New York City police detective who could read the music and think that something was up at the bookies had enough musical skill to decode what was written on the page. But being able to read sheet music like that isn't necessarily what makes you a musician. So someone can be a great musician without ever notating music or knowing how to read music notation. 
it's kind of the same as people who can be fluent and speak a language really well, and they don't need to write down every word. Some people who speak well don't know how to read or to write. In the musical domain, improvised jazz solos are a great example of a musical conversation that never gets written down on a page. Right. You can be an amazing storyteller and work with language heavily, yet never write it down. Right. So it's easy to think about language as always being tied together with speaking and writing going hand in hand. Uh, But this makes me think of something I saw on the interwebs recently that said, reading is amazing because you hold slices of a dead tree covered in squiggles and hallucinate vividly for hours in perfect silence. (laughs) (laughs) It's the weirdest drug ever. Right. That's awesome. (laughs) But it's, it's also true because when you sit and read a book, it's a silent experience. All of that imagination and all of that processing of the language takes place in your head. So for most of us, reading is a really great way to experience language silently, uh, but it's not available to everybody. So blind people or those with visual impairments have trouble reading things printed on slices of dead tree. Um, But I was learning recently about a machine that was invented in the late 19th century, and it specifically translated written language into musical tones to make information more accessible for the blind. It was called an optophone, and it was sort of an audio version of the Braille system. Interesting. So this is pre-audiobook times. Why not just read the book out loud? Well, recordings of books did exist at that time, but they tended to be flowery and theatrical um, and also expensive. Plus, the speed that most people read out loud at is slow. So sometimes you just want to read for information or for learning. The Optophone was intended to be like a scanner, and you could use it to translate almost any book from print to tones. That sounds that sounds unpleasant <laughs> and difficult difficult to learn. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think that's meant to be a W, right? Right. Yeah. So that was a W. And you can imagine learning the sound sequences for every single letter and then also being able to hold them in your memory and string them all together to make words uh, was a pretty challenging task. So I think in the end, only a few people ever learned how to use the optophone with any fluency. But it did lead to several more modern inventions. Um, I think it's the precursor of technology that exists now for things like optical character recognition. And that's how we can scan printed documents and digitize them. So it is an interesting example of music conveying information. Uh, That might be the closest we get when we're talking about a universal musical language. Um, That might be a time when you could sort of give driving directions with music. Right. This is this is the example where this tone means that specific thing. But I can't imagine giving or receiving directions in that language. I think there's a reason that technology never made it big. It is interesting that this is the precursor to scan digitization, you know, the the technology that lets you take a photo of something, save it to Evernote, and then have Evernote convert it to a digital text document that you can edit and change later, which is fascinating and, uh, and pretty random, actually. Well, and optical character recognition is part of what lets 
screen readers access documents too. So in that sense, it is still contributing to people with visual impairments being able to interact with text. That is fascinating. So it has evolved and morphed to fulfill its original purpose. That's really cool. Music isn't a language, and it's far from being the universal language. But speech does have musical elements. When we talk out loud, we use pitch and tone and pauses. So I was super thrilled to interview a spoken word artist and do a live painting to one of her poems. So I'm Natalie Meisner. I am the fifth poet laureate of Calgary and uh, really enjoying the opportunity to bring my writing skills and my poetic skills to bear in this really unusual time. I grew up in a really a small village in Nova Scotia. I was uh, in a single parent home in a, in a town that had, it was a fishing town that had kind of lost its industry. So a lot of people were dealing with like housing insecurity, food insecurity, all of those things. But what I did have is a piece of paper and a pen. And what I did have is a sense that the world that was in front of me wasn't the whole world. I had a sense that there was a huge world out there. And so now that we kind of are locked in again, I went, I went back to those early days of just finding solace and finding hope in poetry so that even when our attention spans are shrunken and the demands on our time to pay our rent are huge, that we can all just have this experience of trying to reorder the words around us. I've pivoted my own practice as, a, as an artist recently to just think, how can I even more directly apply my skills? So how can I write a poem that will help people right now? One of the questions that I wanted to ask you was about, so the poem you sent was spoken. And then there's also the written version, which is the way a lot of us do experience poetry. And so I really wanted to ask about the origins of that poem, like the chicken and the egg. Do you start with speaking out loud or do you start with writing things down? And like, what's that process like? I mean, I think that my stuff is more designed for voice or for performance. Like it's not to say that, I, you know, that you can't read it on the page. What I want is like for them to be vocally inhabitable. That, you know, it's a richer experience, I think, when you hear it than if you were to read it. And you have that theater background, too, which I, I think maybe influences it a, it a bit. Yes. Yeah, it absolutely does. Like, I feel like even though we don't know who the character is in every single poem, I feel like they're all slightly different character voices. Tell me a little bit about the origin for Carry On. Like, where were you when you thought about arrival gate lineups? <laughs> I was in my bedroom and I had a carry-on from a recent trip. Like, I think the last time that I traveled, it was to go to Newfoundland. And then, boom, you could never travel again. And so I had the actual carry-on that I had taken to Newfoundland. That was, you know how they are, partially unpacked. You just kind of take what you need out of it and stuff it away. And then, I don't know, a few months later, into the pandemic, I'm looking for something. And I find the carry-on again and you find like, I don't know, a package of pretzels. And it just seemed like an artifact from another time. I'm trying to listen in on those emotions that are the undercurrent of this storytelling. And I do hear hope and I do hear longing. And I don't know why, but I have a really strong image or like 
sound, those carry-on wheels going through the airport, I feel like I can hear that. Yeah, it's a very specific sound. I always feel like I know I have a poem when there's something that I'm trying to write about that I do not fully understand how it moves me. Like the search is the poem. And that's funny that you mentioned it because that sound, the the sort of complexity of a bunch of humans zipping around with those wheels, there's something that is like so pithy and so interesting. It's like we love it, but at the same time, it can get us in so much shit and so much trouble, all that travel and all that being together. So there's, yeah, there's something that I'm still kind of getting at inside and you put your finger on it that has something to do with the sound of the wheels. I became actually a little bit obsessed with the sound of those wheels. I really wanted to find a way to incorporate those tiny little tracks and I pretty much flipped my house upside down looking for something that would approximate. I was just about to pull out my own carry-on suitcase and, I don't know, dip it into paint when my partner suggested a Nalgene bottle. So you know the lid on your hiking water bottle? Yeah, that's what made those tire tracks. Painting to a poem felt spare. There is literally just the sound of her voice, and that's the entire audio experience. There are no layers, there's no instruments. It's really empty in a way. At the same time, I found it soothing to just tune into the poem without any flourishes or sound effects. This painting has a lot of white space. It feels light and airy. There are hints of the blue sky, such as you might see through an airplane window, and little snatches of green springtime colors. And of course, those carry-on wheels. And now, here's a short clip of Natalie's poem, Carry On. The perfect carry-on contains all humans need for departure, folded down to the size of a postage stamp, to be stuffed in the overhead compartment, a cubist suggestion on wheels, so sleek, so lightweight, they barely exist. Can we carry on much longer as we have been? Now boarding, sips of light streak from wingtip to ocean, hammered steel, lightweight dreams oxygenated. We were going someplace, remember? Carry on, snug overhead, how suffused with purpose everyone seemed, was, or pretended to be, just suffused with intent, with momentum. The wheels on this carry-on, so in line, so soundless, no shoes squeaking, passing over polished floors, burnished intentions, places we aim to leave no mark on. Carry-on. Thank you so much for joining me, Natalie, and Dr. Kate. And a big thank you to CJSW for generously supporting the Music for PhDs podcast. On our next episode, we're going to learn about how babies learn, specifically how their brains absorb music, language, and other patterns. Imogen Heap composed a song scientifically to make babies smile, and it's called, naturally, The Happy Song. 
We could all use some happy in our lives, so I hope you'll join us for the next episode of Music for PhDs, the art project disguised as a podcast.